This podcast, number 844 with Gerald Gangram, is brought to you by Sarita Maven, author of a new book entitled Say What You Mean in a Nice Way. Sarita has worked inside businesses for years, helping employees, managers, and top executives become more skilled at their communication tactics. Our interview is filled with sound advice for communicating more effectively, and Sarita's book, Say What You Mean in a Nice Way, is a must-read for anyone wanting to improve their communication skills to reduce and eliminate conflict and disagreements in their lives. If you want to learn more about Sarita Maben and her book, please visit her website at www.saritamaybin.com. And now for our featured podcast with speaker Gerald Gangren. Thanks and happy listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And today, joining me, you're in Virginia. Is that right, Gerald? Yes, Greg. Thanks. All right. So in Virginia uh, is Gerald Gangram. And Gerald has been recommended to be on the show by Douglas Holliday. And Gerald has spoken at George Washington University. And many of you know Doug because Doug has been a guest on the show. And uh, actually, Gerald has spoken at Georgetown and the MBA program there, correct? Yeah, that's that's correct. I actually met Doug while I was going through the program there a few years ago also. So I'm, I'm a graduate of the program and also they, they keep having me back for various things. Well, it's good they're having you back because I'm sure that these students are learning a lot from you. And I'm going to let our listeners know just a very tad bit about you because I'm going to let you speak about yourself, which I think is important. Um, uh, He is, Gerald is a retired U.S. Army major um, with many consider a war hero from his combat service during Operation Enduring Freedom. Uh, He was raised by a single mother in lower income area of Queens, New York. He's always strove to improve himself and hardly imagined being the recipient of numerous medals along a career piloting, by the way, the most uh, um, complicated of aircraft, the Apache attack helicopter. Uh, He's a graduate of the U.S. Army Academy at West Point in 2007. Uh, with a commission as the aviation officer. He attended the Army's flight school and ranked competitively to qualify in the Apache, the world's most advanced helicopter, as I said. Uh, His first assignment was in Colorado, serving as a platform platoon leader, I should say, and a battalion uh, adjunct human resource officers. Um, He has lots of experience. He's been to Afghanistan. Uh, Following his deployment, he commanded the Firebirds, the world's largest attack company, and his accolades go on and on, and he retired after 11 years of service uh, in the military. So, Gerald, um, I think, you know, if anybody's speaking about leadership or speaking about personal growth, because our show is on personal growth, mm-hmm. you'd be an excellent one to actually address that. And you've decided, you've achieved so much in your life. Um, was there one defining moment or turning point in your life that triggered your desire to basically excel? You know, we have a bunch of listeners out there that are, uh, really into 
to finding out what's going on psychologically in people's heads, what's going on emotionally um, and psychologically, because, you know, to get that drive and, and that ambition and that courage to do what you did, I'm sure they'd like to know, was there a turning point? You know, Greg, that, that's a great question. Was there a turning point? I feel like there are a lot of different times where I, I've had this, this drive that, that came to me early on, but one of the times where I realized I had to be more decisive and deliberate with my leadership um, was after the loss of, of one of my soldiers. Um, th- this, and it was specifically when I was bringing the soldier back to their family. Um, their parents had requested that I bring his remains, bring him back uh, to them. And I, I didn't quite know why. I wasn't particularly like really close with this soldier at all, but not closer than some of his peers would have been. He was the lowest ranking person in my unit, uh, Jimmy Miroy, uh, Winston Jimmy Miroy, we called him Jimmy. And so when I finally got to meet them, I was like, I, and we were talking, I, I asked them, why, why me? And they told me about how whenever he had either written or called them back home, he was always saying that, oh, Captain Gangram was helping me with trying to get into West Point, or um, he was helping me with Lieutenant Gangram, I guess at the time, was helping me with learning land navigation or stuff that had nothing to do with his job as an aircraft mechanic. And how he had all these ambitions of wanting to go from being the lowest ranking person in his unit to that highest ranking person in the unit, um, my, my job within it in that platoon. And um, they said that they wanted to meet me because they wanted to see how their son could have turned out. And it was such a tragedy for, for everything that revolved around me getting there. But in that moment, I felt so humbled and, and it was by accident that it almost happened. I wasn't trying to be this person, but I realized how much of a ripple effect that I could have by, even if I wasn't trying, like we don't see sometimes all of the different things that people are taking away. Um, Again, had nothing to do with this job, but those ancillary conversations we were just having about leadership meant so much to him. Mm-hmm. And we're having such an impact that he's t- talking to his family back home about it. I had no idea. And so I realized then that I had to be more deliberate with what I was doing as a leader. It's interesting because that really leads in well to, to my next question. And I think the turning point was the fact that you had influence on somebody that you really didn't feel that you were having that much influence on. And I think we need to be cautious of our actions around others because the, the reality is, is that can have an influence posit- positively or negatively. Um, the way we speak, the way we act, there's a lot of things that we can do to influence that. And I think that can be a turning point for a lot of people because they really don't realize it, especially when somebody passes away and then you have to be uh, the person that delivers the news to the parents and the parents wanted to see you. I could see where that had a big emotional impact on your heart, pulled at your heartstrings and probably changed your life uh, considerably. So as a retired military officer and graduate of West Point, you've had so much discipline in your life. Um, what are the positives about having this disciplined and focus uh, in your career and what advice would you have for the listeners who are, you know, personal growth kind of fanatics 
and they're going, wow, this it's just too much discipline for me. Um, I, I could I can't handle that. I, you know, there's so many people that won't go in the military because they realize, right, what's gonna happen, right? What they have to do. What are the positives and then what are the negatives of that? Yeah, so I think the notion that the there's definitely discipline in the military. Don't get me wrong when I say this next part, but it's not as bad as you might think. Um, I, I don't really see it as a negative. There's a structure to it, a regimen. And really, it's, it's almost no different than that strict parent telling you, make your bed every day and like do your chores and whatever regimen they're going to have for you at, on, on a strict parent is the same kind of thing you're going to have with the military, except there are consequences if you don't do it. Still like that strict parent's going to have, right? So it's, <laughs> right. it wasn't that different. For me, actually, when I went into West Point, I almost was like, wait, this is, this is it. Like my, my mom was more strict than this. Um, so it's, it's kind of funny. It's all about really perspective for us, right? It depends on where you're coming from, that environment and that upbringing. And I only see it, especially starting off, being very, uh, being that young adult, where if you're put into that place where you have all of this structure starting off, it can build those good habits. So many people are like, oh, I, I wish I had the discipline to do this or the motivation or whatever. When you don't have those things and you at least have structure behind it, it can be very powerful in just giving you momentum to do those goals that you have set out to do. So that's where I really uh, encourage people to look at. It doesn't have to be military service. You can get this from so many other things. It's just whenever you're putting yourself in an environment where you're still serving others. The Peace Corps is a good example of this. I know they've been having some, some struggles with COVID right now. Um, but they're, as long as you're giving back, whether it's certain jobs will do it too. If you're working in a political office, um, they, they still require that same kind of structure with it. And, and you will either, sometimes people need that outside structure and sometimes they can get it on their own and kudos to them for that. Well, <clears throat> there's been theories that, you know, look, um, a routine in the morning is always the best thing to have no matter what it is, whether you wake up and you meditate and then you go do a run or you go to the gym or whatever. And everybody in the personal growth industry will tell you that having some structure uh, or routine is very positive. On the flip side of the coin, um, the structure, the unstructured environment helps with innovation and creativity. It allows the mind to go into places that it wouldn't normally go when it has that. But they found that the uh, balancing between the two of these is really what creates a person to be able to have that, that uh, the release of the endomorphins and the things in your body that physically uh, create that. And curiosity is one of them. And to create that level of curiosity, which then creates passion, which then creates drive and grit, and, the, and it goes on down the cycle. Um, we recently had Stephen Kotler on here, The Art of Impossible. And he spoke about that. And scientifically, they've proven that in your body, that that's what has to happen uh, to actually reach those um, peak performance mo moments, the, the time you have to do peak performance. Now, you know, look, you couldn't have chosen to fly any other aircraft where you had to be at peak performance in the Apache attack helicopter, attack helicopter and you were in Afghanistan at the time and you were being attacked. <clears throat> um, it, has there been one of the highlights in your career, if you would, tell us what it is like flying such a sophisticated aircraft and what did you learn as a result of becoming a pilot, right? So there's one thing to fly an Apache. It's another thing 
to just be able to fly, right? Period. Doesn't matter what it is. Um, so if you would, our listeners would probably love to know um, the highlights for you, from you. There's, there's nothing like it in the world. And it, once you, once you do it, especially in an aircraft that can be as acrobatic as the Apache yeah. is, uh, roller coasters and amusement parks just don't have the same feeling anymore. So it'll, <laughs> it'll ruin those for you. So, so get your fill of those before you go to flight school and you start doing <laughs> back turns and all these uh, combat maneuvers. But I don't know if I can handle the G's anymore. I remember going <laughs> up and uh, on a birthday, forget what birthday it was, and the guy was in an aerobatic. I wanted to do this so bad. Right. And then after I was finished, I was kind of like, I don't know if I want to do that again, because I almost lost my my marbles up there. <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of those things I love doing um, those types of flights where we really show off the maneuverability of the aircraft for combat um, towards the end of flight school. So at about the five month mark, we do these flights with these students that have already been flying in the Apache for five months. But then all of a sudden we're doing these very aggressive maneuvers and all of a sudden you're looking up and you're seeing the ground and there's this, all the, the G's, whether it's positive G's where you're getting thrown back in or the negative G's that you're feeling from that elevator kind of lifting you out of your seat. There's this smile that you see go right across their face. And um, sometimes you even get that squeak of a wee going out and you're like, hey, we said it, watch it. Uh, but it's, but it's, it's great. It's fun. It's exhilarating. It's freeing. And then it's, and then it's humbling because this specifically is an aircraft that is designed to not just, it's a weapon that can move from point A to point B very quickly and, and reposition itself. So there's all the fun with flying, but then you also have to remember at the tail end of this, when you're taking this aircraft specifically into a combat situation, that that's where I did my job really was in Afghanistan. It wasn't the taking it over to Denver and getting used to doing cross-country flights or anything like that, flying to California from Colorado is all about figuring out, yeah, how to make this aircraft dance where it became an extension of myself, but then how to use this as a weapon system. And that, um, I, I enjoyed it tremendously. Um, it, the attack community, the Apache community is a small, a lot of, a lot of people, but it's small, tight. And it's, it's, it's one where we eat our own. Um, definitely, but that's because there's so much that is expected of these pilots. And um, I've had a great pleasure to work with so many of these high caliber performing individuals. Well, so on that same note, look, you spent this time in Afghanistan and obviously you, uh, you were able to release lots of rounds of ammunition from this uh, aircraft. And uh, the degree of accuracy at which you talked about, it's a, a highly accurate um, vehicle. Um, what was the successful mission that you think? I think the whole operation that you talk about at your website was a big operation. That was the operation you were there for. But you had to fly lots of missions, yep. right? Um, how many missions did you fly? And, and in what uh, elements would you say that you know you were super successful against the quote, enemy um you know i always kind of look at war because i come on a different perspective that i sure wish we could all just come to some level of peace in this world uh, mm -hmm. we wouldn't have to spend so much money on apache aircraft and you know i'm taking kind of an odd viewpoint here but the reality is i think the monies could be spent 
for needy and the poor and people that need to be fed and all kinds of things. And here we are fighting a bunch of wars to try and keep peace worldwide. Yeah, no, Greg, I think you bring up a, a great point. And I'll, I'll tell you that I believe there are a lot of soldiers that share your same point of view. They'd rather be home with their families if they could. Right. Um, but thankfully, they, they are, are standing up to do this kind of thing. To answer your question about all of the missions, I've, I've flown, I have hundreds of combat time, hundreds of hours of combat time uh, logged from when I was in Afghanistan. Um, yes, this is an incredible machine. And when you get really good at it as a crew, um, there are two pilots in this aircraft and you how have, much of it was it, how much of it was in the dark of night? Ooh, um, all maybe, of it, you know, we ran 24 seven operations. So right. my shift really depended on what I had to do at any given time where I was needed. Also in that leadership position, I was an executive officer when I was in Afghanistan. Um, so I had to have a different shift from the only other person that was higher than me in the unit, the other com the commander, um, the other captain, we had to kind of stay off shift. So it depended on, oh, do I have to do stuff with families back home with the FRG in some type of way, family readiness group? I had to be on nights there because it was day here sometimes or whatever was going on. It was mission dependent. Um, so I would say maybe two thirds of my time was on nights. Okay. Um, and That's then maybe a lot. The other third. Yeah. So it was, yeah. So maybe like 300 hours of uh, maybe the flying that I had might've been um, uh, in Afghanistan, at least was, was at night. So you are totally dependent on instrumentation in this craft, uh, especially when you're flying at night like that. Yeah. yeah well, yes. Um, we, we don't use night vision in the same way that other aircraft do. We have, uh, we, the Apache sees things in thermal. So even our weapons, you have, you can reach out and touch something from eight kilometers out and you have all these weapon systems that are working together to help do all this great math to get rounds on target as long as you're flying the aircraft correctly and using all these instruments like you're saying but then what you also have is you're seeing things by heat signatures mm -hmm. um which is really good for us flying at night in the apache because we don't need any ambient light where it's red sometimes for the aircraft because there's not even a trace of moonlight they can't see anything with their night vision we're fine we prefer because you definitely can't see us um so we're able to see things from well out and then get rounds on target from farther if we need to and that that's a great ability and and when i think about these times that we, we have to show up. Yes, sometimes I did shoot a lot of rounds, but the very first combat flight that I had, we got that call, troops in contact, and we're heading over, and there's nothing going on. There's silence. Like, these guys are like, hey, we're coming under fire, and when we get there, I thought we were late. And I called the guy on the ground, and I'm like, hey, what's going on? He says, it just stopped. You got here. They heard you coming. Even the dogs have stopped barking, sir. Can you just stay here? Like, and, and we did for a little while. We decided we would stay as long as we could so that they could get some rest that night. And we, they would just hear the sound of our blades in the air. So we didn't have to shoot that day. There are other times where <laughs> definitely we had to do that. But this is one of yeah. those times where just the threat of what we were doing just stopped everything. Yeah, it's a, a phenomenal aircraft. And you were so honored to be able to serve and to do that. And thank you for your service. You know, you served 11 years of distinguished active duty and you were a leader this whole time you've been a leader. What in your estimation does it take to lead with character, one, and two, what's your personal credo? What would you, what would you basically tell other leaders right now that are listening to this podcast? It doesn't matter. They're leading employees inside of a company or uh, they're leading somewhere. Um, what, what is uh, the, how do you lead with character? Uh, 
Um, and what is your credo? So you have to first figure out what it means to lead with character. And I think the easiest way to answer that is to be a servant leader. For me, that servant leader is someone that is put into a leadership position, assumes a position, however they get there, but they're leading not for the intent of raising themselves in any way. This is a leader that's willing to sacrifice for the benefit of the group. Right. And to be that type of leader um, really takes just that, that heart, that integrity to always keep your mind on your people. So to be that leader, you need to know what your people are doing, like really get to know your people so that when so that you're hearing them complain to you, a leader should always hear complaints. If you stop hearing complaints, it's not because you're doing a great job. It's because they're complaining to someone else. They don't think you're going to do anything about they're it. They're complaining silently Yeah, they, to one another. Yeah, they're complaining <laughs> to someone. You're just not hearing it. And if you yeah. don't hear about it, you can't do anything about it, Greg. Yeah. That's, that's a bad thing. When it comes to leaders, though, if there's one thing I can tell leaders, there's a lot that, that I share with people, but one thing in particular for anyone else that they can take an action on right now is don't serve fires. Remember that you have all of these people underneath you, whether it's five people or 136 or thousands. It gets real easy to think about, oh, this problem just came up. And you start serving these fires, these problems that come up. Sometimes there are personnel problems. Yeah. And sometimes it's just other things going on in your organization, but you're spending, it's really easy to spend like 90% of your time on 10% of these issues that affect 10% of people. Right. And it's, it's a horrible thing. And what I tried to do every time some random thing came up that was taking all of my time with a disciplinary action or something was I had to even this out. So I would, for every one negative action I had to take, in my company, I tried to find three positives that I could take. I would go out of my way to make a phone call to a wife or husband and say, hey, thanks for letting your um, significant other stay late tonight. It really helped with inventory. I would try and get an award to someone to, to show how much I really appreciated the work that they were doing. Um, whatever it was, that, like don't serve fires is the main thing that we can do as leaders to make sure that our people know I'm not just here for all the negative stuff. I'm here for you too. Yes. I appreciate you not causing trouble. Let me show you that. I really mean that. Well, the Greenleaf school of, of, as, as you were saying, the servant leader model is basically the people aren't there to serve you. You're there to serve them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you're basically saying is that that's the best you can do is serve them in whatever capacity and how you can do it most effectively. Right. Of yeah. Course. So now, you know, that you're a black man in the military and all of my listeners are aware of the biases that exist in our branches of the military. It doesn't matter which branch it is. Uh, How would you address this issue and what can be done to reduce the bias and discrimination issues as you see it? You obviously were discriminated against. You saw the biases. Um, We know they exist. It's been on 60 Minutes. It's been all over the place. how would you approach this as a black man and leader who was in the military? That's a great question, Greg. Um, my mind's already coming back to so many different things. I, I remember even when I was young in the military and a platoon leader, um, it's not that the men and women I served with me or under me are trying to be racist. It's not that at all. Right. It's that there's just, 
of different perception. We do have black people in the military, but they're so much confined to being on the lower rank, the non-commissioned officers instead of officers. So even when people would pass me by and I was just wearing um, physical training uniform that didn't have my rank on at all, people started greeting me as, hey, Sergeant, how's it going? Still trying to render courtesy to me, but then they assume the guy that's next to me, who's my Sergeant actually, they assume he's an officer and they would either salute him or call him sir and stuff, but they always thought, hey, no, you're definitely lower ranking. Yeah, if you're out here, you're probably someone important, a leader, but I'm still gonna call you Sergeant. It, it didn't make sense, right? And and there was so much of this that continued to happen with things. And the way I tried to deal with it was to bring it up with my soldiers on these walks that we would have sometimes where I would, I would have them go with me and just see how others were interacting with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to be mindful of it. I had to obviously maybe do things twice as hard as another person to make sure that I wouldn't get questioned on it the same type of way. Um, I love talking to people on the phone before they ever met me in person, um, because I could establish all my credibility before they actually saw who I was. So there are some things like that, that I know some people do, but it was also the way I had to carry myself where it never became a, it was never a me versus them kind of thing. There was this one time I had this gentleman, um, a much older man come by my flight line while we're having a family day. And this he's a grandfather of one of the student pilots that's there as they're all around the aircraft, like taking pictures and stuff. He comes up to me and he says, you're black. And I, I look down at my hands and I'm like, Oh, sir, like really, I, I never noticed. And I'm like trying to joke <laughs> with him and stuff. And he keeps going though. And he's like, you're, you're the commander here. Cause he notices the rank. He has some military background I can gather from this. And I was like, yeah, I am. And he says, well, I would, you think your soldiers respect you? I would, I would never serve under you. Like I was in this war and stuff and I, I would never have served. Like we never would have respected you if you were leading us. And I was, I was mad. Yeah. He, he started telling me, I, I had my West Point ring on at the time. I wore it for these family events and he was telling me, you probably even stole that ring. You probably didn't get that. And I was getting more mad because yeah. of how much it took me to get into this. And my soldiers start coming over. And they start listening to what's happening. And one of them asks, sir, is, is everything okay here? Um, is there a problem? And I tell him, no, there's not going to be a problem. Please escort this man off my airfield. Sir, thank you very much for coming. You are no longer welcome and authorized to be on my airfield. I don't want to know who you're related to, but I'll show you how much my soldiers um, respect me because they're going to escort you off. Thank you. Um, I really wanted to hit the guy. <laughs> but what I did in that moment was show that it had it it wasn't like one i only had one black soldier in it or two so i wasn't going to be able to have a black soldier escort him off even though that guy was there um it was more of just there's no there was no favoritism i didn't i didn't see these types of divisions and i yes some people always thought oh did you get this job as like the black commander here because you're black and we finally needed like to have one or two of them Um, and you just, you have to prove it wrong. And it's sad that that's what you have to do. Um, but thankfully I was able to get that respect by the actions I took, um, and continuing to show them that I, I wasn't going to listen and and buy into that. Well, it's a great story. And I think, uh, the way you handled it, um, was done very tactfully. And I think most importantly is the emotional impact it had on you. Um, it actually brought up a lot of anger 
it brought up a lot of frustration for an issue. Um, and actually, that anger sometimes, as you know, can't serve the light. Yeah. Darkness can serve the light. We do know darkness can serve the light. Um, and the question is, you were the bigger man, because here's this guy who's degrading you in front of, 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 of your military people. And interesting, though, because, you know, when you talk about a turning point in one's life, that's also another turning point or big learning lesson um, from how the world sees you. And you know this has been going on all your life. Um, and so to address that, what has to happen is those conversations have to occur. Yeah. Exactly what happened there uh, to help turn people's biases around about who you are. Now, following this deployment in Afghanistan, we were talking about, you were chosen to command the Firebirds. This is the world's yeah. largest attack company. Um, what experiences have you taken from the assignment that work in everyday life today? So, you know, my listeners out there, 99.9% .9 of them are never going to be uh, associated with the Firebirds or they're not going to fly an Apache helicopter. But what they'd like to know is because you were with the Firebirds and you flew an Apache helicopter, mm -hmm. those experiences that you had, what were the ones that, look, 99% of your time is not spent in that Apache, Apache helicopter. No, it's not. I wish it's, it was. <laughs> it's, spent, it's spent right here on the ground working with your family, dealing with people at the grocery store, doing the things that we commonly do every day. Um, were there experiences that maybe you took from that that you could relate to our listeners that could be applied every day? Yes, um, because I got to work with so many people and their families. And yeah, it's, it's an extension of getting to know your people, right? Like, because it wasn't just when people are worried about stuff back home, it's going to stay on their minds. It's going, they're going to bring it with them in the office. There's not this mentality of, oh, you leave home at home at home when you come to work. And when you go back home, you leave work at the door. All of this kind of melts in, right? You bring your worries with you. And you don't want to bring those into the cockpit with you. Definitely. You don't want to bring those into war with you. So you're constantly having to realize that when you're taking care of a soldier, when you're taking care of a person, you have to take care of their family as well. You have to at least know what's going on with them. Obviously, occasions are a big thing for people, especially the birth of a child. So I would have a baby tracker Excel sheet because every month there was at least one or two babies born in my company. And I knew when they were going to get born. I knew the hospitals and I had blankets made at the very beginning, just so that I would be the first people um, at the door waiting to greet this new firebird hatchling is what I call them and share in that joy because when times get tough, I didn't want that first phone call that I have to make to a family for them. I hated even the beginning where, where I called a wife or something and it was, is Joe okay? Hey, I'm, I'm just calling to say thanks for staying late. Right. But I had to get there so that when times did get tough and something bad happened and I was there with them, they weren't going to be crying on my shoulder because I was the only shoulder there. It's because I was the shoulder that they wanted to be there. And that has been something that I've tried to harp on so many times with the, those that I continue to mentor that you need to care for this person as a whole, not just 
those segments. So much of, so many of us, every one of your listeners, I, I almost guarantee serves someone, whether it's a family mem- member that's looking up to them, a friend, a colleague at work, someone at their church or something, they're, someone's counting on them to be that, that person and lean on them. And when you really think about it, those are the ones that you just see. There are so many more that you're not seeing because of these effects that you're having. on them. So did I hear you say, let me repeat what I thought I heard you say. One, that you became good at compartmentalizing. Uh, when you got in an Apache helicopter, you had to leave behind um, all this other stuff temporarily to be able to focus. Okay. So compartmentalization was a really big lesson. And however you did it, you did it, right? So what I'm saying for my listeners, is that something that I can take from this and say compartmentalization? And on the other hand, what you're saying is you were always thinking about others ahead of time so that those people could be comforted, nurtured, supported as a result of your actions as a leader, so if you were doing that, you were actually thinking ahead. So you were very proactive. You had all the blankets made ahead of time, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So I think, you know, look, I'm looking at, uh, if I'm looking at things that somebody could do, I agree with you. The proactivity is important. I think compartmentalization is important. Was there anything else that was important from that? Yeah. So there's this concept of the show has to go on that we always have in our heads, right? Like if times get tough, keep moving through it. And yeah, you need to do that. But sometimes in order for the show must go on, you have to sit down. I had some students when they're going through the Apache course, this again, most advanced helicopter in the world takes a lot to get through, but they would struggle at times. Right. Okay. That's, that's fair. But when I would have them come in my office, sometimes the struggle wasn't, I'm not studying enough. When I would really push on these people, I'm like, no, why aren't you getting, why aren't you getting, you're doing great now. What just happened? All of a sudden something came out with, I don't know where my father is. Well, what do you mean you don't know where your father is? There was a tsunami in the Philippines and I haven't heard from him in a week and I'm worried. That obviously isn't something that you can completely compartmentalize. Mm. I had another person, my, me and my wife just lost our, our baby, stillborn, um, newborn that came into our lives, stayed with us for an hour and now they're not with us. It happened two days ago. Well, hell, maybe you shouldn't be trying to fly an Apache right now. Do I have, is this a combat scenario where I need you out there? Or is this a training scenario where, hey, take two weeks and be with your family and, and get, get whatever you need in order right. so you can come back, right? Like we have to figure out as leaders within our communities, within our businesses, whatever, when we can let people sit. Sometimes okay. it isn't, we need to always power through right now. There's, there's timing and phasing for things. And, and that's the other part of this is that compartmentalization can't always happen. We need to know when to take a breather, when we can give that person the ability where we're not just a manager that has someone come in, say that they're sick is going to say, Hey, don't worry. I got your shift covered. That's a good manager. A leader is going to take care of the shift being covered and then like make sure that you had chicken soup mailed over, call you later on and be like, hey, are the kids causing you any trouble? Do you guys have meals and stuff for tonight? How sick is this? Did you go to the doctor, right? They're going to do all that follow up. We, we need to sometimes be reactive with people as well. 
That's really important. I am glad you added that and you emphasized it. Uh, you said it, but that you emphasized it. Um, and it is important as a leader, especially a servant leader, which you said that's the kind of leader you are, uh, to look at that. And um, when you treat others the way you'd like to be treated, um, that shows respect. And I think that old axiom goes back uh, biblically. Um, yes. We don't. We don't need. We don't need to harp on that one. But the reality is that's that's one of the the truths. Now. You obviously are a man with lots of drive, ambition, courage. You know, it takes courage to fly the helicopter, takes ambition to do it. You got to get through the schooling and then a lot of drive to say, that's what I want to do. What influences in your life helped you to develop those attributes of drive, ambition, and courage? I know your mom, you had a single mom. Were you yes. the only one in the family? Um, I, I am the oldest of four. Growing okay. up, it was just me and my sister, my younger sister. And now I have uh, two additional younger sisters. Okay. So what, is there anything that you would add about seeing your mom and the influences that your mom had on drive, ambition, and courage? I mean, usually mothers have a tremendous role in, in psychologically how people turn out as much as people maybe don't look at that they do mostly sometimes more than fathers oh i've i've written books about my mom at this point i feel like just random military papers i've written about like oh who's like a leader you admire or who taught you self-leadership or something my mom is the answer definitely mm -hmm. when you have someone that works multiple jobs to make sure that you can keep your head in a book um that you want to talk about sacrificing, like talk about physical sacrifice, where I know my mom wasn't eating as much because she was trying to make sure that we had more to eat. Enough. Just when my mom found out summer school was a thing, I had good grades. And she was like, wait, you mean you need worse grades for summer school? She, she worked to get me into summer school because she was like, hey, that's now the summer you can eat two meals again. Like what's going on here? So like there's all these, and I remember sometimes sitting next to me, like pointing out what to get so that, and, and I, and I could see that she wanted food too, but she would never eat anything from my plate as much as I, I knew that we needed to share between like, and, or I need to take something home for my sister or something. Um, like I, I can't, you know, I get asked what success is, Greg. And when I get asked what success is, it's a washer and dryer. Mm -hmm. When I first got to my, I got out of West Point, got a rental place in Alabama at flight school. And this place had central air conditioning mm -hmm. and heat. Oh man, this was big for me. I called my mom up and I was like, you're not going to believe this. I'm in a townhouse, your house. She thought it was awesome. Um, again, I'm with a roommate affording this stuff, but she thinks this is incredible. So incredible. She drives down. Drives down from New York City to Alabama with my sisters and everything to see this place. She's all happy. And she's like, I'm so proud of you. And as we're leaving, she sees this door to this one area. And she's like, what's this? This is a closet. I was like, no, this is where the washer and dryer is. She opens it. She sees a washer and dryer and she starts crying. We didn't have a washer and dryer. Right. You had to go Even at down. At that point, she had a washer, not a dryer. And she starts crying. We both start crying. And she was like, you made it, boy. You have made it. I made it by having a washer and a dryer. And I always have to put that in perspective of what success is. We, 
whenever people sometimes think there's always a monetary answer of whatever success is, it's a little more money than I have now, right? It's always more money than I have now. But when we think about it in terms of what we do and the gates in our life, it can be something so small at first. And if we keep in mind that that's where it was, we, we've already been successful and we can continue to move that gate to increase our levels of success, sure. But I just remember even when I had to look for places in the past and people were like, oh, this place, this apartment unit doesn't have a washer and dryer. I would get emotional of it, almost start crying. I'm like, no, 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 I can't do that. My, I, I can't not make it anymore, right? I had to think about what that minimum was. So that's, right. that's one of those things that my mom definitely helped instill in me with our environment and everything was to keep track of what those little things are and, and stay grounded to remember who I am. Well, I think, as you said, the little things in life, like a washer and dryer, um, they're indicators of not just success as, as much, but the fact that you were able to manifest that into your life through the good actions that you have uh, put out into the world, right? Um, I kind of believe in karma, you know? You deserve that. You went so long without a washer and dryer in your life, uh, schlepping clothes down to the local corner laundromat and then picking them back up again after you were there. So you get that. And I'm so encouraged by that story. I think that's a great story for our listeners. Now we're going to wrap the podcast up. What would you like to leave the listeners with regarding becoming the best people that they can become? And do you have any insights or thoughts because, you know, you obviously are an example of someone who's spiritual, somebody who has drive and ambition, somebody who has achieved much in their life, um, and somebody who still has a lot more to achieve in their life. You're also somebody who's made a huge contribution. I think contributions are big, contributions back to the men that have worked under you, the women that have worked under you, the people that have worked under you. What insights do you have on telling people or informing people about what it's like to become the best they can become? You know, what I tell people is that you, you can't do it on your own. And like, I've had so many mentors that have brought me to where I am today. I would not have been able to do this on, on my own. And we're lying to people by sometimes telling them that they can just buckle down, knuckle through everything. And with that, you know, you, you mentioned some people call me a hero and all this other stuff because I was in the front seat of, or back seat of an Apache at different times. Um, you don't have to be in the cockpit of an Apache to be a hero. To be that best person, just look out for other people. This, a friend of mine, Catherine, told me about how one time she was taking the bus and the person in front of her, wealthy guy, had on a suit and tie, briefcase, all this stuff. Couldn't find his Metro card. He started doing this dance and she just quickly swiped it through. Um, immediately defused the situation for him where he's not on the way thinking, oh, I have to find change or something. Now I'm going to be late. I'm making all these other people behind me. Just completely defused it. A week later, the guy sees her at the bus stop again, gives her a, a gift card that says, thank you for being my hero. Right? Like that was a heroic moment. We can have heroic moments all the time. It doesn't have to be in combat. It doesn't have to be in the military. It just has to be you being there for someone when they need the help. Um, and it doesn't have to be, again, a heroic gesture can be a very small gesture, but
but it means the world to someone else. And that's really what I, I, I see that quantify as. And I think the, the what creates that, though, is awareness. Yes. You know, the greater your level of awareness to observe what is needed and then to step in, have the courage to step in. Right. Some people are like, oh, well, no, I'm not going to do that today because of something. There's some excuse. Um, but it does take the courage once you've created the awareness to observe around you what's going on. Even that small gesture to use her Metro card and slide it through the thing so the guy wouldn't be anxious and have to come up with change. Um, or I remember, I don't know, about a month ago, um, I decided to, I was in a drive through and it was a vegan drive through <laughs> and I'm getting a, a, a vegan chicken sandwich, what it's made of, I don't know. And, okay. the, and, the, and the person behind me, I said, I want to pay for theirs. How much is it, right? So the whole pay it forward thing, little things. And then they were amazed and I pulled out and the lady said, do you know she paid for the guy behind her? And it started a little bit of a chain reaction. I, think. I didn't see how far it went, but the reality was it's, it's a good opportunity to uh, express your gratitude for the people that are around you. Sometimes even just doing it in silent like that because people don't know you're going to do it, right? It's like a big surprise. It's a huge surprise. Well, Gerald, I'm going to direct all of my listeners uh, to your website to learn more about you. You're a speaker. Uh, you'll, you'll speak almost anywhere. And I would presume you're doing a lot of this on Zoom and it's lessening now. So there's going to be more people wanting you in person again because yeah. um, we are see seeing, especially in California, we're seeing a big opening up actually. Um, That's awesome. Uh, because we are now in the whatever zone we're in. We're in like almost the lowest zone there is. So it's good to see, see all this happening. But go to Gerald Gangram, and that's G-E-R-A-L-D-G-A-N-G-A-R-A-M.com. And I'll say that again, GeraldGangram.com. It'll be in our blog post. Um, check him out. There's a bunch of videos there. Shows him speaking. Uh, opportunity to learn more about Gerald. Opportunity to engage him to speak um, at one of your events. He obviously... Uh, tells a great story. You can tell from our podcast that he does that. Uh, and I just want to thank Doug when Doug listens to this, because Doug's going to be here next week. And uh, we're going to have a dinner here for Path North in San Diego uh, for introducing you and I. And um, thank you so much for being on Inside Personal Growth and sharing some of your experiences of not only being in the military, your leadership, but about your family and all the other things that we covered during the podcast. Thanks so much. Yeah, Greg, thank you so much. It was my pleasure getting to know you. And I do thank Doug very much for introducing us.